0: Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Kennealy for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, November 3rd, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Executive Editor, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Three days into the 11th month, Andrew, and PW has already pronounced on the best books of 2023.
1: Yeah, one of the best times of the year for us at Publishers Weekly and for readers too, I might point out, because we all get to talk about the reason that we do what we do and why we love what we do, which is this great big list of best books uh, curated by a review team led by David Adams. Uh, Good job, David. Once again, the list is an expansive and eclectic, uh, diverse selection of 150 of the best books is chosen by PW editors. It also includes a top 10 list, uh, and it features a a brilliant and timely novel about the origins of AI, and an inquiry into race, art, and legacy by Christina Sharp, who graces the cover of our best books issue. Uh, As David Adams notes in his intro, there's something on this list for every reader. Uh, So if you haven't seen the list yet, please do check it out and go find your next great read.
0: Amazon has sued 20 individuals, alleging they falsely claimed to publish books with Amazon Publishing or Kindle Direct Publishing.
1: Yeah, that's right. Amazon this week announced that it has filed a lawsuit in the Northern District of California against some 20 individuals uh, who are allegedly scamming authors by falsely claiming an affiliation with Amazon Publishing or with Kindle Direct Publishing. According to the suit, these scammers run... Uh, fake, you know, sort of knockoff Amazon websites designed to lure in would-be self-published authors and getting them to pay fees to publish or for services. And then, of course, uh, they fail to either deliver or, in some cases, deliver substandard, but in most cases, don't deliver any service at all. You know, and the sad part of this all is that these, you know, parasites basically are going after people who are really earnestly trying to get their books out to the world. It's often older people too, it seems. Uh, You can read the story on the PW site, which includes a link to the complaint. And in the complaint, you can read about some of the victims and how these scams work. Uh, One person cited in the complaint spoke of visiting one of the defendant websites after they were searching for help self-publishing their book. Uh, Thought she was accessing Amazon's legitimate self-publishing services, started chatting with people who claimed to be Amazon representatives and ended up paying thousands of dollars before realizing that they were not going to get the service that they paid for. Uh, In a release, Amazon officials pledged that they would continue to go after bad actors like this. And since running the story, I've actually heard from authors who are reporting similar scams. So I expect we might even see the list of defendants grow or another suit with more uh, scams like this called out. And, you know just a word to authors out there you know beware when you're searching for self-publishing services be aware that this is out there
0: also this week Andrew Amazon announced a beta test for a Kindle direct publishing service that would allow authors to make audiobooks using virtual voice narration
1: yeah so Amazon also announced that it's testing this technology you stated that's going to allow Kindle Direct KDP authors to produce audiobook versions of their ebooks using virtual voice narration. Now, this is a bit of a hot button issue. We've talked about this on the show before, the idea of audio narrators losing work to technology, to bots, but this program makes a lot of sense, frankly, for a lot of self-published authors who could never afford to create audio editions of their work. Uh, under this new initiative, authors can choose one of their eligible eBooks already on the KDP platform, and you know, sample a bunch of AI voices, preview the work when it's done, customize the audiobook when it's done, and then, you know, make it live within 72 hours. And it will be distributed wherever audible titles are sold. Uh, they can set prices between, I think the levels are $3.99 and $14.99 and the authors receive a 40% royalty. Uh, and of course, all the audiobooks in this program will be clearly labeled as, you know, machine narrated, I guess. Um, now, I still have a lot of unanswered questions about this program, which includes does it really make sense for authors to tether audio editions to Audible and Amazon? Because surely there are going to be other. AI voice narration services out there that authors can use to create audiobooks of their ebooks and then have them on whatever platform they want, not necessarily just on Audible. And it would allow them also to better control their rights and their pricing. Um, so I'm not sure how this beta test is going to succeed and how it will evolve, but I think it'll do pretty well given that it's with Amazon. And I think we can say this much. The program and the voice narration technology is going to significantly increase the number of audiobooks produced by KDP authors. And an Amazon spokesperson said that's a pretty low number right now. Only about 4% of
0: self-published titles through KDP have audiobooks available. In Texas, state's attorneys have gone to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals seeking to reverse an injunction blocking the state's controversial book rating law, HB 900. What do you make of the state's arguments, Andrew, and the chances on appeal? Bluntly speaking, I
1: don't think much of the legal arguments, but I do wonder if maybe the state doesn't have a pretty good chance of winning on appeal, which you know I'll come back to in a bit. But let's start with the arguments here. In its 62-page appeal brief, which was filed this week, Texas attorneys told the Fifth Circuit that HB 900 simply aims to establish standards that will protect children from what they say is sexually explicit material in school and to sort of help parents understand what books the state is purchasing or allowed to purchase, we should say, with uh, public money. As for the law's most controversial provision, that being the forcing of booksellers and vendors to rate books for sexual content as a condition of doing business with Texas public schools, uh, the legal brief pretty much attempts to brush aside the arguments made by the plaintiffs in this case uh, that the book runs afoul of the First Amendment and other constitutional uh, protections, Basically, the the state tries to compare book ratings to food labels. Uh, They say like a nutrition labels food allergen warning, this rating simply tells the buyer what they are receiving, Uh, which, of course, I just have to say is a really lazy comparison that fails on its face. And I'm surprised it even made it into a legal brief because. With allergy warnings and nutrition labels, you can scientifically test and share what's in the can or in the packages, right? There's no debate about whether something contains nuts or shellfish and what the outcome of ingesting those things would be to someone who has an allergy, right? Provably bad. Uh, Sexual content in literature, however, is far harder to identify. Is it two kisses, two people kissing, holding hands, what is it? And unlike... You know, the effects of a, an allergen in food, the effects of reading a sentence or a passage in a book are not provably harmful to everyone, right? Different kids are going to react differently to reading something. You know, all kids are different, right? All parents are different in what they want their kids to read. So, you know, low marks for Texas state attorneys for comparing content in books to allergens. Uh, but I think the most notable thing for me in this brief is that the state's appeal arguments here are identical to the arguments that Judge Alan D. Albright really easily rejected at the district court level. Uh, first, the state argues that the plaintiff's claims are unripe. Um, in other words, because there's these new collection development standards mandated by the law don't go into effect until April 1st, That you know, there's no reason to bring the suit now. Second, the state argues that the plaintiff's lack standing because they haven't established a concrete injury from the law. And third, the state argues that the plaintiff's claims... Uh, are barred by the doctrine of state sovereign immunity, which, of course, you know, protects the state from federal actions. So, you know, the focus of the case on appeal basically is that Judge Albright really blew it and blew it on some very straightforward legal questions. Uh, you know, for example, whether the plaintiff's claims are right, Albright dedicated just a few lines to acknowledging that, you know, the book ratings may not be due until April one. But there's no question that to meet that deadline, booksellers have to start the costly process of reviewing and rate, rating those books pretty much immediately. And a lot of them are stopping selling books because they can't meet the burden of this law. On the question of whether an injury was sustained sufficient to confer standing, Albright said there was substantial evidence that book vendors can't and could never comply with the law's vague and overbroad provisions, many of which are barred by the First Amendment. And on the question of state sovereign immunity, uh, the judge found that the ex parte young exception, very legal term I know, but you know there's an exception to state sovereign immunity that easily applies here. So I don't expect that to be difficult stuff for the appeals court. Uh, at least it doesn't seem that way to me.
0: Judge Albright ruled that the law violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment by forcing booksellers to adopt state-approved ratings for every book sold to Texas public schools. How does the state defend its position on that point? Yeah, so very interestingly here, the state argues that the court doesn't even need to
1: reach these questions about constitutionality because the legal deficiencies I just talked about require the case to be dismissed. And again, I'm not sure this argument can carry the day because Judge Albright really didn't have much of a problem dispatching this in his opinion at the district court. In that September 18th opinion, Albright agreed that the state has an interest in what children are able to access in schools, but he held that HB 900 uh, was basically the state abdicating its responsibility to protect children by forcing private individuals and corporations to. To comply with a law he said was unconstitutional and violates the First Amendment. So, you know, our listeners will recall that Albright, in his written opinion, also observed that the burdens placed on vendors by HB 900 were so numerous and so onerous that they called into question whether the legislature really believed any third party could ever possibly comply. And he called the state's attempt to outsource these book ratings to booksellers and private vendors under these really vague standards and that we should know a considerable, non-recoupable cost. He called this a textbook example of compelled speech. Now, why do I think these arguments might actually prevail at the Fifth Circuit? You know, even though I think they're some pretty weak arguments, frankly, because the Fifth Circuit is widely considered to be the most conservative court in the country. And I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they will find a way to overturn this injunction, even though we should point out that this injunction was issued by a conservative judge, a Trump-appointed judge in Alan D. Albright. Anyway, much more to come on this. Uh, The plaintiff's brief is up next. That's going to be due on November 13th, and then oral argument is set for November 29th. So we will certainly be talking about this case through the end of the month and most likely through the end of the year and quite possibly, I think, well into 2024.
0: Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Executive Editor, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. That's all for now. Our producer is Rob Simon of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Kennealy. Thanks for listening.